All righty, let's get into the meat of this episode. So we have, as our first story, we have Russian estimates on the status of Ukraine's military losses. Well, the status of Ukraine's military, but we're primarily focusing today on the, the losses, because that is, I believe, really the more relevant part of this, although the condition of the army is also an important factor. But as far as we've seen, the Ukrainians are still willing to fight, so the, the condition of the army isn't necessarily a topic of priority, because we know the Russians are just going to blast them apart no matter what they do. We know that the Ukrainians are losing equipment at unbelievable rates. And I believe the loss of equipment is the more important story because if you're losing equipment, essentially you're losing your ability to fight in the first place. You can't just send masses of infantry up against a, a well-armed foe like the Russians who have this ridiculous superiority of artillery and in quantity of artillery. It's insane. But Russia, st- Russia says now, Russia says now, that 12,000 foreign mercenaries over the course of this year and a half that the war in Ukraine has been going on, Russia says that about 12,000 foreign mercenaries have served in Ukraine's armed forces from around 90 countries. So a lot of countries, perhaps they were volunteers, perhaps they were state-sponsored agents sent in as a sort of attache, sort of see what the front lines looked like in a truly modern war. Not just, oh, we're going to go on patrol in this desert country. We might see some resistance from the locals when they fire off a few pot shots at us and we'll we'll drop a bomb on their house for good measure. No, 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 not that modern war. Real war, where both sides are able to shoot at each other with modern weapons or semi-modern weapons, you know, and our both sides are able to hit each other back, not one side dogging the other and unable to be touched because the other side doesn't have the sufficient weapons to do so. No. So perhaps uh, given the number of countries who sent these mercenaries, perhaps it was an attache, you know, to send men, send men in onto the fronts to see what war in the modern age would, would look like. And to those who did that, to those who sent in these attaches, the ones who lived, I'm sure they have gathered some incredibly valuable intelligence about how modern wars are fought. How modern wars are fought, excuse me. But 12,000 foreign mercenaries. Now, that's a very small proportion of the the numbers of men that we've been dealing with here uh, in the, the fighting. And certainly when you look at the numbers of losses. But even still... Russia says that that number is now down to just 2,200. Indicating that a lot of these people came and they've left. And I remember the stories about people leaving their families (laughs) to go fight for Ukraine. And then some of them got stuck. (laughs) Some of them got stuck in Ukraine. They got there, they tried to leave, and it's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, no, no, comrade. You're you're fighting the war. You're go fight the Russians for the the fatherland. So, and there there were a whole lot of crazy stories to come out of that uh, that the early phase of this war. I remember some <laughs> some dude let in uh, uh, some Ukrainian refugees, and apparently it was a a very fine woman. And uh, long story short, the the very fine Ukrainian woman ends up pregnant, 
and he divorces his wife to be with the EA. Uh, no, I laugh, but it, it was it, mu it must have been a tragedy for them. Um, but you remember, uh, you remember that wave of people who were just signing up to go fight for Ukraine when this war began, which is where I'm sure the majority of this came from. That combined with you know. NATO sending in mercenaries, the Polish in particular being notorious uh, for, well, not notorious for sending mercenaries in, but most notable amongst the semi-combatant powers that are NATO in sending mercenaries and uh, essentially Polish troops in a different uniform to go fight this war. But now the Ukrainians are down by 10,000 mercenaries. Now, is most of that from casualties or is from that from them fleeing Ukraine? Now, that would be an interesting thing to look at, but either way, Ukraine's mercenary force is dwindling. And if it's being replenished, then they are certainly losing more men than they are getting in terms of these, these mercenaries. But that's not all Russia has to say about Ukraine's military. Because they say that Ukraine was losing nearly 20% of its armored vehicles in the first few weeks of Ukraine's uh, their counteroffensive. The later weeks, however, Russia saw that these rates of loss dropped down to just 10% of Ukraine's armored vehicles. So, while at first I thought, oh, so 10 plus 20, they, okay, Ukraine lost 30% of their armored vehicles. Uh, upon thinking about it for just uh, like a little bit longer, I don't think that that is necessarily how this went down. Uh, and I, I don't really, I think it's actually, you know, still close to like 20% and hear me out on this be, I believe it's more of a weighted average, like week, week by week or day by day, however you want to go. The period of time where they were losing 20% would, uh, and then you have the period of time where they were losing 10% and then how, whichever one of those periods was longer, th that one, that period of time would certainly be weighed more. Uh, but, 20% losses for like three days and then 10% losses for another three days. You haven't lost 30%. You've, you're essentially at an average that is somewhere between like 15 to 20% losses. You've lowered the average, but it's still going to be closer to 20. So something close to 20% of Ukraine's armored vehicles that they've used over the course of the entire offensive, even when the, the loss rates fell off, somewhere between 15 to 20% of Ukraine's uh, armored vehicles have been destroyed throughout this counteroffensive. And uh, so that, that's a, that's my little insight there. Perhaps I'm right. Perhaps I'm, I'm thinking about this completely wrong, but uh, I, Looking at it, I didn't think that 10 plus 20 equal 30. <laughs> I'm like, wait, now, wait, now, hold on a second. If the loss rates fell off, then how can you add 10 to 20% now? Now, just give me one second here. But, but yeah, while this latest bit of info doesn't really come with any hard numbers, which is the, the, the problem that I had with seeing, oh, they lost 20% of their armor over a period of time, and uh, they don't specify the period of time either. And then they drops down to 10%. Considering we don't know what, <laughs> when they were losing the 20%, and then when the 20% drops down to 10%, and since we don't know if the drop-off was immediate or if it was gradual, like 
what we can assume it was probably gradual. Uh, it goes 20, then down to 18, then down to 15, then 12, you know, 10. It was probably gradual, but cons- we, we just don't have the information. We really, we, we really just don't. So if we just assume it's, if we just assume it's 20, one week, 20, another week, and then boom, it's down to 10. That's really the best we can do given what we have. But while it doesn't specify the period of time when these specific sets of losses were taking place, and it doesn't specify the specific number that these percentages represent, like how many, how many armored vehicles is 20% losses? Is that five? Is that 10? Is it, is it one? Is it none? How many is that? It doesn't specify, but I think we have sufficient numbers from the past to work backwards from. Uh, because if we assume, if we assume, and the, you, I'm gonna, I need you to just run with me on this because I, I think I'm onto something here. I think, I think we can extrapolate the number of vehicles if we combine this information, this 20% losses in the first few weeks, and then 10% losses in the, the later weeks of the offensive, if we extrapolate that and combine it with the information we got from that Russian Security Council meeting a few weeks back, oh, back uh, like on, on week two of the counteroffensive, when the Russian Security Council met and they started dishing out those, those numbers and we talked about them, I think if we combine this information with that information we got back then, I believe we have something to work with here. I do believe we do. Because if we assume, and uh, here's here's where we get to the assumptions, but you know, just work with me. If we assume that the period where Ukraine was suffering the 20% losses of their armored vehicles, and if we assume that, that roughly overlapped with the two weeks of the Ukrainian offensive that preceded this meeting of the Russian Security Council, because Ukraine their offensive really fell off after the second week, which is something that I observe, uh, especially with the losses of men. If we assume that the the 20% losses overlapped with that two-week period when the offensive first began, and then it was 10% from every week on after that, then we can, we can, we have something to work with here. We have something to work with here. So that would essentially mean that the 600 Ukrainian armored vehicles that the Security Council had essentially agreed were destroyed or damaged, 600 armored vehicles uh, after the second week of the offensive essentially concluded, 600 Ukrainian armored vehicles would represent this 20% rate of loss spread out over a two-week period of time. So that means, uh, so to simplify, that's the 20% losses over two weeks equals 300, no, not 300, equals 600 armored vehicles destroyed. So if we shorten that down to one week, with, still with 20% losses, then that means 20% losses over one week was 300 armored vehicles destroyed. So then you break that down further, uh, you get an average of 42 armored vehicles lost a day. If we, if we assume that these two bits of information overlap with one another, which we can, or we can just be completely wrong. But, you know, it's, I'm all over the numbers. I like the numbers. It really paints a solid picture, especially when we're given such vague information. But that's bad, to say the least. But 
that that's a twenty percent losses, which means you know with twenty percent losses they're losing forty to to forty three armored vehicles a day. That's terrible, cause especially when you consider how much we were hyping up giving them thirty one Abrams tanks. Now these aren't tanks being destroyed; these are armored vehicles. But you know, just to give you an idea of the the quantities of these vehicles we were hyping up as oh this is a big deal and they're losing 42 to 43 a day in the first two weeks of the offensive now if we cut it down to 10 percent then that we just we can just cut it in half 21 of these armored vehicles lost a day is what has been the average for ukraine starting somewhere in week three of the offensive still losing around 21 armored vehicles a day as a sort of average and we'll, we'll say it's a weekly average so some days it's like it's a lot lower and then some days it, it's back up to like 30 for some you know a weekly average you know but needless to say no matter how you slice that that's still terrible that's bad especially considering that ukraine is not making these these armored vehicles they're either coming out of warehouses from the soviet era or they're being imported from nato Neither of those are is an unlimited supply because you're not producing anything. Ukraine is going to run out of armored vehicles. At some point, they're, they're just going to run out. There's not going to be anything left for them to have. And, and when I say run out, uh, perhaps they won't have zero. But if they have like 20 Bradleys left when this is over... Who in their right mind is going to say that is an operational force of armored vehicles? No. If they have like 50 tanks left when the war is over, who is going to say that is an operational force of tanks? No. So none is you know, really, really, really low. Not necessarily zero, but really, really low. They're going to run out. At these rates of loss, they are going to run out by the time this, uh, no, well, shoot. I could say by the time the offensive is over, but I think that that would be shooting the gun. That, that would be jumping the gun, not shooting the gun. But this is bad. This is really bad for Ukraine. And every time we get every time we get the hard numbers, it's really bad for Ukraine. It's it's never good. I've noticed that, that it's never good. Uh, they like they have good moments, you know. They do have their moments, but the broad picture is never a good one for the ukrainians but you might say okay well these are what the russians are saying that it's clearly a bias and i have to agree and i i admit i am being very heavily reliant on these russian numbers but my the reason why i lean so heavily on these russian numbers is one they're really all we've got the ukrainians don't like publishing numbers uh certainly not believable num- not not believable numbers like if they were believable we, we could say okay let's compare and contrast but they really don't like publishing numbers the russians do and surprisingly so one they're idling on the russian numbers because they're really all we've got unless you want to believe what the pentagon is saying <laughs> where the russians have lost uh, uh three four five hundred thousand men that they've lost two hundred thousand since uh the, the battle of bakhmut alone and it's like, okay, <laughs> uh, we, we can listen to the Lloyd Austin, John Kirby, and who, who, was the, who was the third guy? Was it was it Blinken? Was it Blinken? Tell me it was Blinken. 
so I can I can rag on him again when when all three of them at different points no it was Millie Austin Millie and I think I think it was Kirby I think we'll have to give Blink in the pass on this one Austin Millie and John Kirby all saying Russia has lost strategically militarily and economically the war is over except it continues and they gain ground every day yeah uh, we could we could trust them, you know. We could we could go with the their, their numbers, or we could see that they don't know what they're talking about, and look elsewhere for the truth. So one, I go off the Russian numbers because they're all we've got, and two, the way in which the Russians get that info is by intercepting Ukrainian communications, or at least that's what they said when again when that Russian Security Council meeting uh, was held. Because when they, they all gave out their estimates for Ukrainian losses and they were putting it at thirteen to 15,000 after week two of the offensive, they said that they got that info by intercepting Ukrainian communications. So whenever like a, a Ukrainian platoon or a squad or a division would report their losses, they would send that to their, their headquarters. And if you can collect enough of that, those, uh, those comms over the course of... Uh, a period of time, you can get a, a pretty good picture of how much Ukraine has lost within a certain time frame. And that's what the Russians claim they've done, which implies a, a pretty wide-ranging penetration of Ukrainian communications. But if that is true, and again, that's the if, if that is true, then the numbers that the Russians are giving us are not just Russian numbers. They are the Ukrainian numbers because they're taken from the Ukrainians telling their commanders how much they've lost. So if true, these are actually Ukraine's numbers that Ukraine just doesn't want to tell us that they've lost. So that's why I lean so heavily on what the Russians are giving us. That and the Russians have, a, have established a very interesting habit throughout this war of telling us the truth. <laughs> it's very interesting to compare and contrast them with our own government who claims that the Russians are the liars? It's it's been jarring at first, and but now I'm just happy to have them because it gives me uh, factual things to talk about on the podcast. You know, I, I appreciate trustworthy news wherever I can get it. I just never thought I'd get it from the Russian government. Uh, Russia, meanwhile, while all this has gone on, has been on their own offensive, making gains near the city of Liman, Avdeevka, and Kupiansk, and a number of others. But they're sort of farther away from those others. And Avdeevka is nearing an encirclement. Now, whether they choose to go for the full encirclement or if they go for the cauldron approach like they did with Bakhmut remains to be seen. I will leave the battlefield tactics to the Russian military. I'm not even going to predict that. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I've learned my lesson. But they've been on their own offensive in the northern part of the, the front line. So, well, we I, I say northern, but... If you look at the shape of the front line, the, the whole the whole front line for Russia is north. But so really we're looking at the the easternmost portion of the front, uh, sort of further east than where the Ukrainians were making their major offensive in the Zaporizhia region. So in the in the Donbass is where the Russians have been attacking and making ground. And the fact that they're doing this at the same time the Ukrainians are sort of petering out. It's just as I figured would happen. 
back when we were still waiting for Ukraine's great counteroffensive to begin, uh, I said that the end of Ukraine's counteroffensive would see them having depleted their reserves of equipment and manpower, which would open the door to what I called the Russian backbreaker offensive. And we might be seeing the early parts of that offensive right now. Granted, the Russians have been on the move the entire time. They never really stopped. It's just we focused on Ukraine for this period of time. But it seems that the Russians are going to start picking up the pace. Uh, Especially when you consider how content they've been with static warfare this entire time. Just sitting back behind their lines and beating the Ukrainians mercilessly with their savage amounts of artillery. And speaking of artillery, the Alexander the Duran says that Ukraine was able to start firing up to like 25,000 shells in, in the early parts of this offensive. Which means that those, those massive injections of artillery shells that we were talking about uh, prior to the offensive, those made it through. Those made it through. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the episode. But with the Russians on the move now, and Ukraine having weakened itself, and thrown away its its really large reserves of equipment. Because if you look at these losses, 600 armored vehicles, that's not something small. 300 tanks is nothing small. And that was on week two when the Russian Security Council meeting had, was held. We're probably looking at around seven to 800 armored vehicles by now. Or somewhere approaching 500 tanks. Like, these are terrible losses for Ukraine. And with the Ukrainians having thrown away their military equipment like this, how are they going to defend themselves when the Russians go on the attack? Especially since the Russian Air Force is increasingly more active and playing a more active role in the war. Because they, they use those, that missile bombardment campaign that they started in October to whittle down and whittle away at Ukraine's air defenses. How are they going to defend themselves with no armored vehicles, with no tanks, with less artillery than they had to begin with? And they were already in a losing war with the artillery because they, they lost like 30 something, uh, something, 30 something odd artillery pieces in the fighting. How you managed to, well, actually, no, I won't even bother asking that question. Because the second you fire the artillery off, if you don't move it fast enough, it's going to get hit with the enemy's artillery. And it, if the Russians have a, have a chronic advantage in artillery and the ukrainians have a chronic disadvantage in artillery well it, the second you fire off at one russian artillery to silence the guns so that your men can move you you probably have like one to two russian artillery pieces pointed at you now and since the, the russians have whittled away ukraine's air defenses that means drones and helicopters can operate in the skies surveying the ground to do targeting operations for pinpoint accuracy of the artillery so I can actually see exactly how they would lose so many artillery pieces, which are really far back from the front lines, really far back from the front lines. So if they're losing all this equipment, how are they going to be able to defend themselves later on when the Russians start moving? Because Ukraine is better on defense than on offense. The Russians are good on offense, but we saw with Bakhmut how well the Ukrainians can hold out if you give them a good defensive position. But if you strip them of the military equipment they need to do that, well, what's left? 
what happens when the Russians get past the Kalyanivka River? It's a wrap. That's what it is. It is a wrap. I think we are witnessing the beginning of the Russian backbreaker offensive. Only time will tell how all this is going to manifest. But with Ukraine having lost the Battle of Bakhmut and lost 80 to 100,000 men in one battle, uh, and with Ukraine having lost its great summer offensive, I think we can say uh, now that they have lost. We'll, we'll give it a month, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm calling it now that they've lost. I'm calling it now. It, it's already been a month and a half since it started, so I think it's safe to say they've lost. And they lost these two battles while suffering terrible losses of men. Uh, nearly 100,000 in Bakhmut alone. 100,000 casualties in Bakhmut alone. Nearly half dead. And all this equipment that they've lost in this, uh, this counteroffensive. Hundreds of tanks, hundreds of armored vehicles, dozens of artillery pieces. How do you, you, you don't come back from that. Especially not without an industrial base to produce it. You don't come back from that. And it's, it's clear to me that this war has turned decisively in Russia's favor. And now we just wait to see how that favor is used. And it's not going to be good for Ukraine. It really ain't. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.